Once again, I want to turn to the Word of God. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 24. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4, followed by verses 36 to 44. Matthew 24. Reading from verse 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the living God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him and pointed out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming, of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. May God bless the reading of his word. Now turning on to verse 36, reading through verse 44. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but your Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. O Lord our God, give to us understanding of that word we have read. Give to me a liberality in proclaiming that word to the hearing of your people. Holy Spirit, take your word. Cause it to be planted deeply in the hearts and the souls of your people. Care for it, water it, nourish it that it may produce a fruit of righteousness in their lives, that it may produce the fruits of the Spirit in their lives, that they may grow in Christ's likeness and holiness, dying to sin and living unto our God. Holy Spirit, be gracious to your people. Lord Jesus, be gracious to your people. Father in heaven, be gracious to your sons and daughters. We ask all, we pray all, in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may or may not realize it, I don't know. 
But Matthew 24 is a thorny passage. It is a passage that has vexed the recent church in America, at least in my lifetime. When I first became a Christian back in the 70s, there was um, much said about the end times. There were many books written. There were many uh, prolific teachers out there giving times and dates and schemes to understand that we might know and be able to say with some specificity when Jesus was going to return. Read these verses again. And you will see that that is a mistake. Matthew is in a particular context. And first I want to uh, put before you the purpose of Matthew, which I'm sure you've heard before. Matthew is a gospel written by an apostle to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah of God. That Jesus was the fulfillment of all things in the law. That Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. That Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial laws. That Jesus fulfilled all the laws pertaining to the tabernacle and the temple. That's an important point. I want to return to that again. That Jesus fulfilled the laws and the prophecies concerning who the Messiah would be. Who would be that greater son of David that would usher in the kingdom of God? The disciples expected Jesus to be that Messiah. Now, there was a mistake the disciples made that is being somewhat corrected here, and a mistake that the Jews in general made that is being corrected by this passage. And that is, Jesus' kingdom was not a physical kingdom. What the, what the expectation was that there would come a Messiah who would rally all of Israel around him. And they would take the sword in hand, the spear in, and shield in hand, and they would drive the Romans into the sea. And they would reestablish an, uh, the kingdom of David and Solomon in all of its great glory from the river to the river, from the sea to the sea. They expected a physical kingdom, and they expected that they would have the positions of honor and places of authority in that kingdom. Remember John and James, the son of Bojanes, the sons of thunder? Mother, very ambitious for their sons, comes in and says, Here are my sons. Let them have the right and the left in your kingdom. They were thinking in earthly terms. They were thinking in uh, man terms. They were thinking in Positions of privileges and authority. And Jesus is one of the things that's being done in these, this section of Matthew is he's correcting that. That's the big context for Matthew. As we come to this passage, we find that beginning in chapter 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, we're in the shadow of the cross. Jesus is about to go through that last week of his life. He's about to go through that betrayal, that arrest, that trial. Those multiple trials, I should say. Those trials. Rigged. I should say that too. Those rigged trials. 
Trials where witnesses are bought and paid for. Judas is given 30 pieces of silver. Men come in and they libel Jesus because they're doing it for pay. And even later, money has to be paid to guards to silence them and to give them a new story, a new narrative to spread about when it comes to the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he has to, that bribery has to not just be for those guards, but for their officers right on up to the governor. All out of the temple treasury. That's another thing. It's no wonder that within a year of all that happening, you read this in Acts, and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. Because, see, they knew what happened. Money went missing. And when money goes missing, <laughs> watch out. People, they start paying attention. And they, so they knew Money was going missing and for what purpose? But everything in these, these chapters, what's being told, is told in the shadow of the cross. The cross is imminent. The death is imminent. The burial is imminent. Intimate. The resurrection is intimate. And the ascension. So all of that's going to happen. And that's the thing that brings in the kingdom of God. That, 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 that is the thing that Ascent it causes the Christ to be exalted to the highest heavens at the right hand of God. What we're being told here is in that light. Don't forget that. Because if you forget that, you'll get down, bogged down into trivia. Trivia that doesn't go anywhere, that's useless and wasteless. There's a well-known, he's dead now. He started a very had a very effective ministry in radio built up a huge radio system where really solid theology went out on the airwaves, teaching the Reformed faith. He carried R.C. Sproul. He carried James Montgomery Boyce. He carried, you know, great men, great voices. And he wrote a book. <laughs> That's sometimes a first mistake. He wrote a book. 94 reasons, no, 98 reasons why Christ is going to return in 98. Or 88. Then he doubled down after being wrong and said 94 and 94. Then he doubled down and he had another book. You would have thought somewhere along the way he would have realized you can't name the date. You can't set the hour. It's not there to be found. No one knows this time. No one knows this date but the Father who's in heaven. Not even the angels. Not even the Son. What hubris. The Son doesn't know. And you think I'm going to figure it out by dicing and slicing and parsing and putting back together the word of God? Ain't happening. I don't have those skills. I don't have that knowledge. And Jesus warned us about that. And the thing he says to us in this, don't even try. Don't speculate. Don't worry about it. Rather, what does he say? What does he emphasize? Be ready. Be ready for that sudden day. Be ready for that day when I will come and I will return. Be ready. Because that day is packed with meaning. And we're going to come to that too. And if we missed out those two points, the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew, 
the shadow of the cross, and the imperative to be ready. We've missed the point of the passage. And whatever else we're gleaning from the passage is going to be off kilter. It's like a saw. Um, I, I do building. And I have a saw and a blade. The blade was warped. Guess what happened to my, my wood? It just wasn't true. No matter how many pieces of wood I cut and I try to straighten it out, didn't happen. I bought a new saw. I mean, after a new blade and a new saw. It just didn't work. We don't want to miss those two points. The gospel of Matthew is given to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah of God. And all that Jesus is giving us here in this particular passage in the past context and text. The context is in the shadow of the cross. So now we can look at the text. Only the Father knows the day. It will be sudden that day, and that's one thing we learned. We'll be going about our business like in the days of Noah. Noah's days was sudden. And Jesus immediately goes right back to history. And he says, what's going to happen is not necessarily a new thing. It's happened once before. Although I do scratch my head about this because it's like, do you, tell me this. How many of you think that the, the, the flood suddenly came on the people of Noah's time? That they had no warning about it? That it caught them unawares? Well, actually, it did catch them underwears. But the point is, for 100 years, what is Noah doing? The Bible tells us he's a preacher of righteousness. He's preaching him. There's going to be a flood. And, you know, by the end of the 100 years, they're saying, oh, Noah, you're a fool. You don't know what you're talking about. I heard this three decades ago. I heard this 50 years ago. When are you going to get off this stuck record? Well, then the drop of rain fell. What was that? Too late. Jesus tells us something similar. Just as in the days of Noah, married, who's, there's, isn't there some marriages going on here this summer? All right, someone said there was pregnancies going on, babies are being born. You know, ordinary day, things are happening in life. And Jesus said that's what would happen. And in, this, in, the, in, the, in those days, in the ordinary days of life bam the return will happen for some of us we will not see that return that that suddenness will come a different way it might be in your sleep it might be in a heart attack it might be in a crane wreck it might be in a plane crash who knows what it might be from but it will become it will come it comes to all of us and the older i get the closer it comes and the more i realize it my body tells me this. Every morning I go out and try to do something I used to do with a lot, of, a lot, was a lot easier. Let's put it that way. So Jesus here is setting before his disciples privately and notice that. This isn't necessary instructions to be thrown about everywhere in the world. I always love these teachers who want to involve the, the, the world outside of Christ in the discussions of the things of Christ. This is one of those things that's it's an internal thing given to us for our internal encouragements, for our internal understanding of things. It's not that it's secret. It's not that it's hidden. It's just not public. 
This is not Jesus in the temple proclaiming something. This is Jesus on the Mount of Olives telling his disciples something. This is disciple news. Jesus wants us to understand this. We're his people. We're his brothers. We're his sisters. We are the sons and daughters of God. Jesus wants us to understand this. And what is it he wants to understand? As we read this, what's the immediate context? What has the disciples pointed out to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, look at these stones. How long has it taken Herod to build this temple? 40 years. They say that for the time of Christ that the temple of, of Herod was one of, considered one of the most beautiful structures in the world. Don't know, never seen it. But this is what's recorded in the various histories of the day. When, the Roman, when a Roman would come for deployment in Judea, probably messed up in Rome and that's why he was sent there. But anyway, when he would come out of the mountains from Damascus and he would see it for the first time, he would behold splendor and wonder and beauty. He beheld something magnificent. This temple is being talked about. And it's, its destruction is what's being talked about. And it's tied to the, to the work of Christ. And the disciples ask about this. The first thing we want to note about this uh, passage, as I've already said, the context of the larger passage of Matthew, the specific passage here to be ready. Now, in that light, Jesus points out a couple of other things I want to focus on. Here we are taught that Christ's death, that Christ's death means something. And it means this. The destruction and the end of the tabernacle temple, sacrificial, ceremonial worship system. That is the temple's destruction that has been ushered in this discussion. It's in that light that this discussion takes place. And one of the things that Jesus has come to accomplish, one of the things he has come to do, is to destroy that tabernacle temple system, that sacrificial ceremonial system. Now, you might say to me, that's odd he would destroy it because is he not the one who commanded it? Yes, he did. <laughs> that's exactly what he did. He commanded the tabernacle to be built. In fact, we can go to Hebrews chapter 9 and we can read how the exact uh, details for that system of uh, worship was in, was in my mind's God. Uh, chapter 9. Now when the first covenant had, and had regulations for worship in the earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared in the first section to which the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. And it goes on. It gives us all the stuff about tabernacle. And it tells us this was done according to the exact representation Moses saw in heaven. Everything about the tabernacle and the temple that was patterned on the tabernacle was predicated on a knowledge of that 
place in heaven where God is enthroned. And the imageries that were employed to describe that place in heaven are replicated in the tabernacle and the temple. So that the temple is the place where when you're a devout and godly Jew, you come to approach your awesome, holy, righteous, perfect God. Now you're coming into God's presence. You're coming from all over Israel through, and you're singing the songs of ascent as you come along. Psalm 120 to 135. You're approaching God in songs of travel and songs of repentance and in songs of drawing near and in songs of glory and worship and adoration. And what's on your mind? God's lucky to have me on his side? Or how can I approach such a God in the sins that I bear? How can I approach such a, love, uh, such a God with such a want of love and affection for him and his law? Such a carelessness about his ways. Such a carelessness about his word. Such a carelessness about his person. And you would be pointed again by the law to a sacrifice that would make atonement for your sin. That would cover your sin. So that you may go to that temple and then you, the priest may take blood and he may take that blood and offer it on your behalf and the behalf of the nation as he entered the holy place and then the most holy place there to lay this blood that God would accept his people. And then you could go home and you could uh, go about your normal everyday life. This was the life of the Jew. The one who was pious, the one who was devout, the one who was believing. Jesus and his family, every year to the temple, every year to the temple, every year to the temple. And one day he decided to stay back and have a discussion with the priests and the teachers of the law. He astounded them, even though he was a teen at the time. Son, do you not know we have looked all over Jerusalem for you? And I can imagine that was probably true. Look what vexation you caused us. Did you not know I had to be here in my father's house? And there he goes home and he grows in godliness and wisdom and in stature and favor with God and with men. That tabernacle temple, that ceremonial sacrificial system was designed to teach God's people sin separated them from God. But God in grace made a way for them to come into his presence, to fellowship with him, to tabernacle with him. He had set a tent in their midst that he would come and dwell with them for they were his people. And a temple patterned after that, extended that, at God's command, built under the instructions of David by Solomon. And there was a great dedication, and God comes and dwells in that temple. 
And it was a house of prayer for all nations. For the devout who would hear his name from afar and come and say, I heard of your holy God. I heard of your righteous God. Gentile though I be, I have come to seek him. And there was a court for the Gentiles to be a part of. That there they may approach that God. And over time they might be incorporated into the family of God's people. Just like Ruth the Moabitess was. And others. Rahab of Jericho. Incorporated into the house of Judah. Incorporated into the line even of the Messiah. God put this place there that his name would dwell there. And his name would draw men from the world and from every nation. But now the time has come for that tutor to do its final job. Because it, it did tutor. Because as you came year after year after year after year, let's say you lived into your 70s or 80s, how many trips to the temple would you have made if you were devout in your lifetime? Beginning from boyhood, let's say, or girlhood, through all your days, every year, going to the temple, every year, I mean, we have like, uh, uh, I don't know if they call it Carlton anymore, but the conference, every four years, they have the conference, and people go to the conference every so often. This was even more regular than that, and it was even of a higher order, it was a commanded thing, not just an optional thing, and you would go and you would say, again, a sacrifice. Daddy, why are we all, we, we offered this last year. Why are we doing it again? We offered this the last five years. Why again? Teenager, I don't want to go. God has commanded us to go before him, son. Why? We've done it so many times. What's the point? Ah, that's the question. What is the point? The blood of goats and bulls will not atone for sin. But God is going to one day send us a Messiah. And that Messiah, he will lead us into all righteousness. He will provide for us holiness. He will provide for us a justice before God. Jesus is that Messiah. What's the point of Matthew? Matthew is to convince the Jews and to teach the Jews and to show the Jews that by the law, Jesus is the Messiah of God. That he is the one that will bring about the kingdom of God in its fullness and make us right before him. Jesus has come to do that by destroying the law, by destroying the ceremonial law, by destroying the sacrificial law, by destroying the tabernacle and the temple system and laws. We see this in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, do we not? There we read how Jesus has this discussion with a Samaritan woman. And there's a whole lot there. Someone else will have to unpack that for you. But notice what he says in 21, 22, and 23 of chapter 4. There's this discussion that takes place. And the woman at the well says, well, I know that you say we should worship in Jerusalem, but our fathers say we should worship in this mountain. And so now it's a question, where do we worship? That, that 
a monstrosity you have in Jerusalem? Or can right here, where our fathers have a place? He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, one of the points of that very succinct, putly verse is you're wrong. That's, that's the point. We, we worship what we know. We, we know it because of the revelation of God. We know it from the uh, revelation of God and the instruction of God to build it. The place to build it was chosen by God. When that plague came upon Israel and the place where it stopped, the angel of death stopped from striking tens of thousands of uh, Israelites dead because of David's sin in numbering the people. You know, sacrifice was offered there, and so God stopped his judgment there. That became the place of the temple. David bought it at a great price. And then started preparing for the building of the temple at that spot. And his son completed the building of that temple at that spot. It was through revelation that that temple came to be. We worship what we know. You worship in ignorance. That's the implication. But it's what, we're right. But what Jesus says, the time's coming where the place is irrelevant. The hour is coming and ne that when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, and he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I know when Messiah comes, he's going to tell me the truth. I'm here, I just told you. And the woman goes and says, come see the man who told me everything. He revealed all the secrets of my heart. Well, did, I don't know what she said. But it was told, went and gave testimony to Christ's knowledge of her and instruction to her. And they came out to hear him themselves. But Jesus is tamed. The time is coming. It now is. In the person of Jesus, the temple resides. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. He's the one who's Emmanuel, God with us. He's dwelling with his people. His people do not know it. His people reject him. And we're going to see that on the cross. But he's there. You don't need the physical structure, the pictures, who Jesus is, when Jesus is right there. And you don't need to sacrifice that Jesus is that is only pictured by type in the temple. I am the Lamb of God, Jesus says. 
John declared it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to destroy the temple, the tabernacle system, the, the sacrificial and ceremonial system. Destroy this temple. And what did Jesus say? Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. What was he talking about? Anyone know? You can just raise your hand if you want. He was talking about himself. He was a temple. That's the point. Let's not miss that. You know, he is the point. And it's in the shadow of the cross. The temple of the destruction, the destruction of the temple is what we're talking about. And we're, we often conflate a lot of things in Matthew 24. You know, some things happen more immediate, some happen more in an intermediate way, and some are, are, are for times yet ahead of my, you know, yet to be. In, my, in the days of my, maybe my children, grandchildren, or great-grandchildren. I don't know that, what it would be. I don't know the hour. I don't know the day. Why? Only the Father knows. But he came to destroy that temple. Stephen, what did he say when he was preaching in Acts? He talked about, you know, the accusation was, he wants to destroy this holy place. <laughs> That's not what he said. He said Jesus already had. And he was merely explaining how that it was no longer necessary. Because now we have the real thing. When you have the real thing, you don't need to substitute. When you have the real thing, you don't need to type. When you have the real thing, you don't need the signpost. Now we don't have those systems and those ordinances that point forward to the coming of Christ and his work and his death as the great Passover lamb covering the sin of God's people. We no longer look forward to it. Now you have the Lord's Supper that looks back toward it. And now looks back toward the work of Christ there. And what does it look forward to? For you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see the symmetry of it all? There's a purpose to this. The purpose is God to destroy the tabernacle temple system, the sacrificial ceremonial system, and to do a new work in Christ. And we might point out also that with this, we have not only the destruction of all things, but we have the death of Christ to accomplish something else. Christ died to destroy this. Christ also died that he might become the judge of all men and all things. Now there's a lot more about that judgment part that follows this passage. I mean the next passage about faithfulness and the, the passage after that that, that goes on and set, uh, speaks about the uh, parables that concern judgment that someone else would get into another day. But here it says, it alludes to that judgment when it says, but you know that if the master of the house had known the part of the 
night that the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let the house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What is the purpose of that coming? That coming. What is the purpose of that coming? It is briefly to usher in the culmination of all things. To do the full work of God and bring it to completion. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The ingathering of all the saints of God and taking them and presenting them as those who are faultless without sin before the Father. That's the work of Christ. And Jesus is reminding them of that. This is, you know, I used to say, it's not egotistical if it's true. There was a boxer. He used to say, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. Every time he talked, I am the greatest. And for a day he was. He might still, he might be the greatest boxer of all time. And people used to, oh, the pride of that, the pride of that. Well, the proof was in the pudding. <laughs> you know, get in the ring with him and see if you can stand up. In many ways, he was the greatest boxer of his day for sure. It's, you're not being egotistical if it's true. Okay, you can make it egotistical. <laughs> but you're, if it's true, it's true. If you're good at it, you're good at it. You might brag about it and rather than face it with humility, but nonetheless, Jesus says it's not about the temple, it's about me. Their focus was on that. And he wants to refocus his people and his disciples onto him. He is the focus so that we see him as the approach as our approach to our God. We see him as our approach to the Father. We see him as our approach to heaven, as our approach to eternal life. For there is salvation found in no other name but in the name of Jesus. There is no other way to reach God the Father except through Jesus. And there is no other way to escape that coming day of judgment except through Jesus. Let us pray.